You're listening to Star Wars Beyond the Films, the official expanded universe podcast of StarWarsReport.com. There is a great disturbance in the Force. Welcome to episode number 42 of Star Wars Beyond the Films, your Star Wars discussion podcast. We broadcast on Middle Earth Network Radio as well as on the Star Wars Report website, StarWarsReport.com. Our episodes are also available on our own Facebook page at facebook.com slash swbeyondfilms. But enough about how you got here, let's get the show started. I am one of your hosts, Nathan P. Butler. With me, as always, my stalwart companion and the defender of the EU, Mr. Mark Herleman. Hey, Mark. Hey, Whistler. Always, he's, he's been getting more obnoxious with that. I, I blame it on the third upgrade. I gave him a third upgrade now. I mean, he's he's been a little more uh, sing-songy and stuff of late. Yes, you little annoying trash can with legs. Uh, yeah, so needless to say, it's been working pretty well. I mean, he hasn't really gone on any merry adventures throughout the uh, studio, but he's still obnoxious as ever. He's probably going to blow your eardrums out two or three times. It's not. I haven't worked on that modulation yet. <laughs> yeah, speaking of obnoxious, um, I'm, I'm waiting for the troll to come back out of the woodwork, as he did recently. Um Folks, if you haven't been following along on our Facebook page, we have a new sort of companion series going on here. I have just launched a new web series that was suggested by one of our listeners, David Noche, which is called From the Star Wars Library. The idea is that there are quick little videos posted to YouTube. They're on my YouTube channel. It's youtube.com slash chronoradio, like my old show, C-H-R-O-N-O-R-A-D-I-O. But I also then turn around and post a link to them on our Facebook page. And essentially... They're quick little rundowns of the Star Wars novels and comics in publication order, or in approximate publication order, whatever order makes the most sense, looking at them pretty much in publication order. Think of it sort of as a video version of something that kind of combines the comics companion and the essential reader's companion into something that is a little more bite-sized, but also something that'll take forever to actually get finished. Uh, it's also, right about now, the time that you're going to be hearing this episode we are releasing this on or around October 17th, which means that this is the 15th anniversary of the Star Wars Timeline project that eventually became the Star Wars Timeline Gold that's now about 2,000 pages long. The single most comprehensive Star Wars chronology available anywhere, as I always call it. That, of course, is over at StarWarsFanWorks.com slash Timeline. And, uh, yeah, yeah, so we're kind of doing a lot of stuff with that. And, of course, tying into that, folks, we had our contest running. Today is the last day, the day this is being released, to get your hands on that Star Wars Del Rey sampler that they put out that has excerpts from some of the books, plus some of the short stories out of the pages of Star Wars Insider. All the details were given out in a previous episode, but suffice it to say, if you are still wanting to enter into that contest, go ahead, send us an email, send it to swbeyondfilms at starwarsfanworks.com, Put contest in the subject line and put your mailing address in the body in case you do win it. But bear in mind, it's pretty much over at this point, And in our next episode, we will be announcing who the winner was. It's been going for a couple of weeks now. But uh, since we do technically have one day left, I want to make sure it gets mentioned here on the show. Actually, that's a good reminder. We should probably just post a post about going and listening to our last couple episodes to get the details for that. So uh, those that haven't caught episodes know, hey, there's that contest going on. I, I will get to that later today. Speaking of later today, here at Star Wars Beyond the Films, we ask the tough questions. Questions that have bothered you for a long time, or simple ones that have perplexed you off and on. 
You ponder about Star Wars, and so do we. We ponder about a great many things. Not everything makes this show. This episode, though, we're going to continue to explore the X-Wing series in the EU with the Star Wars Omnibus X-Wing Rogue Squadron, Volume 2. Issues covered in this omnibus are X-Wing Rogue Squadron Special, X-Wing Rogue Squadron 9 through 11, Battleground Tatooine, X-Wing Rogue Squadron 13 through 16, The Warrior Princess, X-Wing Rogue Squadron 17 through 20, Requiem for a Rogue. Now consider this your spoiler warning, fanboys, fangirls, and sentients around the galaxy, because here we go. And let me say that this is a weird choice of where to put the Rogue Squadron special into this this mix of Omnibi. Uh, the X-Wing Rogue Squadron special was released right around 1996, I believe it was, and it's not even technically an X-Wing Rogue Squadron comic. It doesn't have X-Wing Rogue Squadron as the title of the overall series. Instead, it's Star Wars X-Wing Rogue Squadron. The whole subtitle is X-Wing Rogue Squadron. No special uh, label on there except over in the top corner where they usually used to put the uh, the title of the comic series before the number. It says Star Wars X-Wing Rogue Squadron Special, but this was released originally as something you could only get through Apple Jacks. Yes, the serial. They eventually took the story and they combined it just to have a place to put it, apparently, into the trade paperback of Battleground Tatooine, which is probably why it wound up in this omnibus, because that's where Battleground Tatooine is. But it's a story that takes place prior to even Rogue Leader. And I figure if they were going to put Rogue Leader at the beginning of the Omnibus series, rather than putting it at the end in publication order, they did stick that at the beginning of Omnibus number one, it would have made sense to take this and put it before that in Omnibus number one. Otherwise, it seems a bit jarring, because it's essentially a quick little short story on Tendankin, where in order to stop the Imperials, Wedge Antilles sweeps in and blows up a tower, the base of a tower, so the tower falls and crushes a bunch of TIE fighters. Only the people who live there get annoyed because he's destroyed the monument, destroyed the tower, until Luke shows up and basically says, hey, look, this is Wedge. Wedge was, and I do a nice little recap of the classic trilogy. He was part of the Battle of Yavin, part of the Battle of Hoth. This is what he did at the Battle of Endor, etc., etc. Hey, you must know him very well. Yes, I'm Luke Skywalker. But it's while Luke is still in charge, and it's while the squadron is still being called Red Squadron, not Rogue Squadron. So it's a bizarre place to put it, unless the only rationale was, hey, let's stick it in there so that it includes the contents of these omnibi, or these uh, trade paperbacks in the omnibus, and people won't wind up griping about the whole repurchasing of certain things and having split up one trade paperback. But from a chronological standpoint, the way they approach the first omnibus, this is a, a weird oddball choice. Overall, though, I'd say these three stories do fare better than the ones that we saw in the previous Omnibus. Well, I would say you're probably 100% right. It was probably because of the it was in the other trade and they caught it. Because the, the one thing that kind of bothered me about the Omnibus and, and Omnibus in general is that they don't always put them in the order that they came out. There's It's not a publication order per se. You know, sometimes they'll put them more in a chronological order and sometimes they'll put them in an order where they think is more relevant to the story. Like they'll collect certain aspects of the story that take place throughout the series and, and collect them all at once. And the way that, that this falls together, it's like, I kind of would like it to be in the chronological order, but I think as you pointed out, if they did that, a lot of jarring uh, continuity errors here, there, you know, as the, they were published and things were, oh, well, they weren't called that then, and, and okay, well, these events couldn't really fall there, so now this one line of go Rogue Squadron doesn't fit because technically they weren't Rogue Squadron there. 
I think that's probably why they did bust it up and didn't put it in the chronological order because by doing it this way, you're kind of like, wait, where was... And I think that that's a, a general Star Wars publishing aspect of things because it seems like we get a lot of things out of order because it throws you in such a, a state of confusion that you don't realize that things don't line up because things aren't lining up right out the gate. And by the time it's all out there, you're like, this thing is never lined up. But that's just the nature of the beast. I mean, I, I think when you're dealing with something that's always evolving and always changing, this could be the only way you can really tackle that head on. You know, I mean, you always hear about people trying to say, well, we're not going to get too caught up in the continuity of maybe that's how you, you do it. Maybe you just have to kind of put your, your waders on and just dive right into the muck. Quite possibly, quite possibly. Although I will say that what I do like about this particular, this particular set of storylines is that we see some continuity starting to build in terms of the members of the squadron. The first one, and the artwork as well, one of the things I complained about the most in the first Omnibus was that you had such wildly varying artwork. The Rebel Opposition artwork was very different than what we got for the next two storylines, and the next two storylines are much closer to what we see with the rest of the series. That first arc was just really an oddball. You know, you hardly could tell the men apart except for the dialogue because of how similarly they were drawn. Now, we get somewhat more consistent artwork here, but at the same time, the roster of Rogue Squadron starts to change much more often. You know, we had El Scoloro join when we look back at, uh, say, the Rebel Opposition and that sort of thing, but for the most part, we hadn't seen a lot of shifts in the roster. Now, within the span of these, Battleground Tatooine brings us Sixtus Quinn, Briefly brings us uh, Septos, these different members of the Imperial side who wind up essentially being abandoned, who wind up hooking up with the locals. Uh, we see Elskull back, but she sort of gets a new role on Tatooine. We wind up seeing uh, Cap Dendo show up briefly. He'll wind up showing up again later in the series. By the time we get to the second arc in this particular one, the, the Warrior Princess, we wind up seeing Isplorda Cartha wind up kind of stepping out of the story somewhat. Uh, after that storyline, you know, she's still in Requiem for Rogue, but only briefly. And at the same time, we see the introduction of Phalus Ardell, the human well, woman. Ibn Sam. Real fast, real fast about Plur, she also in the third one shows up in there. So it's like, I, I've still got to figure out how that works out. <laughs> I'm like, wait a minute, why shouldn't that one be in the second one? But, you mean in the third omnibus? Yeah, the third omnibus, she's still a member of the Rogue Squad and flying with them in the first story. And well, I was like, whoa, what? Because I, I literally just cracked it open this morning and I got to like the second page and they're talking six weeks or something like that or six months after. And, and the, the main thing says like nine. It, it I was like, what? Well, obviously they've adjusted some things here and I haven't yet figured out how that reflects with this one. We'll go into more detail about that in our next ep episode. But it's one of those that when I when I got to it, though, I really thought those should have fit into this one. And that's why I brought it up. Well, it's sort of connected here with, at the very end of Requiem for a Rogue, the third storyline, or I guess the fourth if you count that one special as a separate storyline, but the third major storyline in this omnibus, she refers to, you know, the idea that the prince basically said, yeah, yeah, go ahead and go, because she would have been driven nuts to have to stay on Iatu 6, on her home planet. Uh, but no, you get, we get Phalus Ardell, we get Ibtisam, the new Mon Calamari pilot, Mon Calamari female pilot, uh, though, how would you be able to know without just the dialogue? You have Harian in gray, if I'm pronouncing that correctly, the Bith female character, and Narin Vako, who is a Quarren uh, 
male in this case, and that gives us a lot of new dynamics to this, uh, aside from the fact that now the, the writers are going to have to start giving us pages like you get early on in Requiem for a Rogue. I think it's just the second and third page where they give you a breakdown of here's the, the images of all the different members, and here's where their homeworlds are, and here's what their names are, so we can keep track of everybody, sort of the comic version of a dramatist persona, except with images. Um, but we get this new dynamic here within the storytelling, where now we have the Quarren Mon Calamari issue, and that's sort of the, the prejudices underlying that, clashing with these two characters who will wind up being two of the characters as we go on in the story that become more fond of each other, particularly as time goes on. So they're starting to play around a little bit. I was kind of afraid early on because I really didn't feel like I had connected much with, for instance, Plur and some of the other pilots who really felt very interchangeable in the first three storylines. But now, as we're getting into this next batch, sort of the second third of the series, now we're getting some more characterization for ones like Plur, who were there early on, for Dlernep, the Sulliston, that we didn't get a lot of characterization for early on. Now we're getting that characterization, and we're shaking things up a bit with new members with their own interesting new dynamics. It's almost as though they weren't quite sure what to do with the series early on, but once they got a couple of miniseries kind of under their belt, then they kind of knew where they wanted to go with it and really dove into it head first. Yeah, and, and Plora's character was one of those that, like like I said in our, our last episode, she grated on me so much. But this one, you definitely realize that she was a main a main rogue. You know, she she was there in almost every single comic. Um, you know, the funny thing for me, like the art style. You know, the first one in the special the special that we have, the Rogue Squadron special, it, it still has that almost seventies feel where everything's kind of like yellow, but it it works better. It, it's like it's like the A grade of that type of of drawing style and i love the big open scenes like when the x-wings are coming down on the base and the atat you know that that kind of artistry is just awesome and then when we get to the next one the battleground tatooine uh that one it, it's kind of like moved up and shifted more i love the characters the, the way that the, they're drawn uh they really just capture the look and feel of the humans and stuff their faces are well defined uh you know it, it's really cool it's it's got a great look to it but it's when we get to the next one after that uh, which one are we looking at here? Warrior Princess? Yeah. But that's still the same yeah. artist, though. It, yeah, Warrior Princess. It, it, yeah, it's the same artist, but something about the styling of it, it, that to me is what, when I think of classic Rogue Squadron, this is the style I think of. I don't know why. It's just that, maybe that's the first ones I grabbed and read. I mean, granted, when we get to the last one, the Requiem of a Rogue, that's the one that I'm more common remembering, the way that their their faces and stuff are drawn in that. But I just I really love Warrior Princess all the way around. That to me is like the essential art for me. But some of these characters, uh, the blonde, uh, is it Phalus? Yeah, Phalus Ardell. Where does she show up? She just like magically appeared. I don't remember anywhere there being a reference to how she joined the Rogues. I'm well, just they like, all Wait. they all sort of appear. The the Mon Calamari Quarren female human and uh, the Bith characters that I went through a moment ago. They all just sort of appear. In the well, middle they, of Warrior Princess, and then they actually get introduced. I don't even think Harrion the Bith got the character's name stated in Warrior Princess. We see them doing some training and such in Warrior Princess. Then they're full-blown rogues by Requiem of a Rogue, or for a Rogue. But in that second storyline, that's the first time we actually get the detailed names, first and last names, as the case may be, for those particular characters. So yeah, they do just kind of get dumped in. They don't seem to be making much of a reference to, hey, these are new recruits. More so than it's just sort of a, these are people who've been flying for a while. You know, Ibtisam, for instance, was at the Battle of Endor in a B-Wing, but 
we're not going to give you a lot of details here. You're just going to kind of have to assume that they're swapping people in and out of the squadron. You would think they would have added at least one line or something in Warrior Princess to make it more obvious where these characters were coming from. Or maybe that they were, uh, you know, off-duty or something the last couple of storylines. I think I think we did get that in a sense in Rogue Leader. I, I believe at the end of Rogue Leader, when they come walking in, Wedge is like, "Wow, you got all these people. You you uh you know, dragged in all these people." And and Luke's like, "No, they all volunteered." I want to say in that scene that they're all drawn in the background, and from there, Wedge picks and chooses from his Rogue Squadron, you know, master list. I would say. Well, yeah, but even then, I mean, even if we're reading these in the omnibus, so we're getting these in approximate chronological order here, where Rogue Leader is before Rebel Opposition, that's still, here's the introduction of all the possible candidates in Rogue Leader. Now we're going to go through the Rebel Opposition, the Phantom Affair, and Battleground Tatooine with none of those characters showing up, and then just sort of plop them into Warrior Princess, and then actively be using them as major characters in Requiem for a Rogue. There's a big gap between even that introduction and otherwise, where there should be something saying, hey, these are our new recruits, hey, these are our newest members, whatever. It just seems like they were sort of thrown in there, almost, again, almost as if they were off-duty. Like, maybe there's a rotation within the rogues, and it just so happens that they weren't up for those first two storylines, seeing as how those were kind of connected together, where they went straight from rebel opposition into the Phantom Affair, so that there wasn't a lot of time to, to bring new members into the squadron at that point, or at least... Uh, new members rotating in from off-duty, perhaps. Yeah, you know, with Battleground Tatooine, I think one of the reasons also that I enjoyed it is you, you had more on Tycho and Winter's little romance budding. You had uh, Huff Darklighter, Biggs's dad. You had that, that whole scene takes place in Luke's uh, Uncle and Owen, uh, Uncle Owen and Aunt Beru's uh, homestead. They're the moisture farm because Huff bought it. I thought that was kind of a little cool twist. But we also have... Uh, Bib Fortuna. Bib Fortuna's appearance kind of took me off because I wasn't expecting to see him in the little spider droid that the, the monk, the Bomar monks had. And that playing out the way it did had a kind of creepy ending to it. Now, off the top of your head, do you remember did his story continue from there in other works? I, I was trying to rack my mind as to what happened to him from there without jumping onto the Wikipedia. Well, in this case, no. This is a storyline that pretty much just kind of dies. I mean, he's mentioned bit by bit in later stories. But from the standpoint of, you know, is there a direct continuation of this that goes into detail once he's switched out of the spider body into Firth Oland's body? No, not really. That's sort of a storyline that pretty much just gets dropped in the overall EU. Although I will say that's somewhat appropriate because they don't really give much in the way of an explanation of Bib Fortuna being in the spider droid body and why he was in there within the span of Battleground Tatooine. If you haven't read Tales from Jabba's Palace, the anthology edited by Kevin J. Anderson, you would have no idea what you're seeing when you first see Bib Fortuna show up in there. I think, I want to say that it's almost the opposite of what they're doing now. Nowadays, it's, we can't assume that anyone has read other EU. It must be accessible, accessible, accessible. In this case with Battleground Tatooine, it was a... We are going to assume you have prior knowledge. It's almost like, you know, taking second year Spanish in college or high school. If you, they assume you've had the first year course, they're not going to go over that stuff again. I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing. Now it feels kind of jarring. Uh, I mean, granted, I know the stuff about the spider droid coming into it, so it wasn't jarring in that sense. But realizing that from the perspective of someone who is reading this, who may not be heavily steeped in the EU, I can see there being a lot of confusion as we get to the opening of this, because, it, I mean, we're not even talking about 
okay, Bib Fortuna as a spider droid was in another comic, so it's Dark Horse assuming that you'd have to have read one of their products to read one of their other products. They're literally literally assuming that the new comic reader for Battleground Tatooine <laughs> has some background in Bantam's novels, and not just the mainstream novels, but the anthologies, which is kind of a stretch to assume, but remember, this is the mid-1990s. Their approach was still evolving at the time. So Bib takes first body and walks off into happily ever after, for all we know. Hmm. I mean, we see, it. we see him sitting there in a, in Jab, on Jabba's old dais, but that's about it. Yeah. Well, that, that's, that's interesting, though, because that's, uh, that's a plot hole wide open. Very interesting. Now, another aspect of this is that we see that they've got, uh, inception-like technology. Uh, when, when they make the rogues, which in this case it's Winter and Wedge, go up against uh, Styxis and the other Imperial Special Troops commander, it very much felt like, uh, uh, which one name I look at? Starfighters of Adumar. It, it very much had that feel of, you know, they're being pitted against each other. But I remember, you know, I was reading this over, my son was reading it with me, and when it got to the point where the heat storm catches up, where Wedge decides, you know, I'm going to go back for Winter, and, I, and, you know, prize be damned, I'm going to save her. And then they end up getting caught in the heat storm anyway and die. My son's like, they died? And I, I remember myself going, they died? What? Even on the reread, I'm like, what? They died? And then I turn the page. Oh, it's like it's like the holodeck on Star Trek, but it's Inception-like. Or they're in the Matrix. I don't know. But I thought that was an interesting use of technology. And, and it's another one of those things that kind of, you know, never see really mentioned again. But didn't it throw you off just a little bit logically? Because if you look at it, after they're released from this sort of virtual world, they're all shocked. Whoa, it was a virtual world? That wasn't real? For that to be the case, wouldn't they have had to have been put into... They put the visors on that are supposedly about communication when it's really for this virtual world. And then they had to go through the process of living through in the virtual world, packing up their stuff, getting aboard the ship to take us to this other planet... Then they go to the other planet, then they disembark, then they go through the combat scenario. Unless there's something where it's somehow like programming their mind with these memories, doesn't that mean that everybody who was waiting on them were just kind of sitting around twiddling their thumbs while the visors took them through hours, probably, of events in the interim, mundane stuff, until they finally arrived, so to speak, on that world within the virtual scenario? It just seems like something <laughs> where it makes no sense for them not to know that this was a virtual world when they were pulled out of it, unless those types of events were part of the scenario. And as soon as you add that to the scenario, that adds a lot of downtime and thumb twiddling for those who are sitting there watching. Well, unless the device had a roofie effect and they just suddenly were out there doing the contest and had no idea about, wait a minute, was something off? I don't really, Wedge, do you remember? I don't know, Winter, what about you? I don't well, you know, I, I would have no problem with them introducing date rape drugs, perhaps, given the fact that we almost get uh, a bizarre, like, drug scenario with Requiem for a Rogue, where we've got the characters being influenced by the dark side juju of the place, and among other things, it makes one of the characters, I want to say it was Wes, start hooking up with the female Bothan yeah, uh, it was Wes. contact, as he calls her. Yeah, that was great. And I loved at the end when the, when the uh, statue's been broke, he's like advancing on her and she slaps him across the face. You're like, ha ha! Yep. How good is that? And she it makes was a, under it, it too. And it gives us a great time to get some of the uh, the characterization in. I know we're kind of jumping around a little bit, but it gets the characterization in for Nurin Vakil, you know, the Quarren, who is eventually going to get over his, uh, his issues, basically his, his interspecies issues, in terms of his own connection with Iptisam. But at this point... You know, he, when he's affected by any of the dark side juju, it doesn't make him 
more amorous. Instead, it causes him to be more, uh, for lack of a better term, standoffish when it comes to race, where he's flat out telling the Bothans, or when, when the others are, are seeing the Bothans dancing and they're getting all excited, um, he's like, you know what? Uh, it's, it's, it matters when it's in your own species, but when it's not your own species, it is simply decadent. I'm out of here. And that's a, that's a big push. Even if you say that the dark side was just highlighting a personality trait that was already there and, and, and uh, making it more emphatic, that he's the one character who does that. So his own speciesism, or whatever you want to call it, is certainly, or xenophobia, is certainly deeper rooted than it is for any of these other characters. I thought that was a nice way to use that to give us more. Nurin is one of my favorite characters in the series, although he's so hard to relate to from a visual perspective. You know, another aspect of uh, Tatooine Battleground that I liked was the uh, Edelon base, the the ship Edelon or whatever. I'm probably saying it wrong. Edelon. But yeah, and how they funneled the funds for the ship. So so the, the rumor was that the ship went out on its test flight, jumped to hyperspace and just disappeared. Well, basically you find out that the ship was just basically a hole in a hyperdrive and it was jumped out to be scrapped. They, it was meant to disappear because they were funneling the funds somewhere else the entire time. And I mean, didn't we just have a similar story like that? Mm-hmm. Yeah. With Phantom I, Affair. I, yeah. I thought that was a very interesting, like how all these different people were trying to milk the empire for funds. And yet a part of me, you know, after reading books like, like Darth Plagueis and stuff, have this feeling like, you know, Palpatine was probably using them and their greed to get like some dark side fuel. Like, yeah, you think you're getting over on the Empire, but I'm making over on the fact that you're, you know, being devious and deceptive and breaking the law. And so I'm feeding off your own dark side energies while you're trying to hurt me. I'm actually getting stronger. I don't know. I mean, I, I, I see Palpatine in this ultimate evil, you know, all knowing type light. And I, I think that's one of the things about the EU. He's, he's used so infrequently that, you know, everything that he does seems to have extra meaning. Like, like the, the, the base at the end of, uh, Requiem for a Rogue, you know, it was his getaway. It looked like there was a statue of him carved in there. There was definitely some crazy stuff going on. I mean, I, how the music, which was obviously Sith magic and, and the dark side affecting Durr, I was kind of shocked by that. And then, and then Hernan herself starts feeling it too. It was one of those things where I was like, huh, you know, I kind of would like to see a book someday kind of explore Palpatine in an Indiana Jones type light where he's going to these Sith places looking for ultimate power. And then what he decides, well, okay, this one's good. I'm going to, I'll save this one for a later day or I have uses for this. It'd be nice to get inside his head sometime and see where he's coming from, where these little stories kind of give you a, an idea here and there of some of the places he's been and the things he's done. But it'd be cool to see it from a first person point of view sometime. Yeah, and especially when it comes to the Sith magic as it's portrayed in this series, because we've got this Bothan. Okay, we're talking Requiem for a Rogue here, the, the third broad storyline in here, fourth if you count the special, and essentially they're supposed to be looking for this liner that had Bothan tourists aboard that has gone missing. Instead, it's gone missing on purpose, because it's gone to this planet to hunt down this Sith temple that the Bothans learned about because Palpatine knew about it, where it's a place where they can sort of tap into this Sith magic to be able to use that to control the minds of the natives and all that kind of sort, kind of sort of thing, to give them great power. And Girov, who is the leader of the Bothans, eventually betrays the rogues so that he can go to the temple and wind up taking that power for himself 
from the Deveronian who's been there trying to tap into the power already. You know, that he got there originally. He was a, an Imperial researcher who stayed when everybody else left after Palpatine died a matter of months earlier. But once Girov gets there, his way of using that power is rather unusual compared to the way we tend to see dark side power used. At one point early in the fourth issue, he puts his blaster to his own wrist, blows his wrist off, so that his hand, separated from his body and apparently animated by Sith magic, can choke the Deveronian until he eventually yeah. calls it back to himself and it reconnects to his arm as if it had never been blasted off. I don't think that's yeah. the kind of Sith magic we've tended to see before. That was a, whoa, wait, what? Uh, like a little box in the corner kind of explaining what in the heck I am reading would have been helpful for that scene. I still am like, wait, did that just happen? I mean, and it's, and yeah, it just magically is reattached. You're like, uh, okay, obviously this Bothan knows some serious bad gangster type dark side magic. Well, plus we get, when we finally see Wedge, Wedge gets shot down early in the storyline, early in Requiem for a Rogue, and he winds up, we find him, he's, he looks like a zombie when he's there with the Deveronium, and it, the the comment is made repeatedly that I brought you back from the brink of death or don't make me kill you again or whatever. Kind of the idea that somehow Wedge is sort of almost now a dark side animated zombie of some kind. And at one point later in the storyline, he mentions how he's able to escape the influence of the Sith magic and everything because he is not susceptible at all to the Force. And it'd be interesting to have seen those elements of the character replayed or, or revisited somehow in the future. The idea of him not just being someone who's not Force-sensitive per se, but not even being able to be influenced by it the way that the other characters were. And to go back to this idea of, well, you know, he died once or nearly died and the Sith magic kept him alive, etc., etc. That would have been interesting to be able to play into and maybe give him sort of a, a reason for maybe some dark-type actions at some point. Now... We've got so many stories that take place after this that, you know, the ship has sailed on that possibility in most respects. But it would have been interesting. It's kind of one of those things, just like with Bib Fortuna, you know, getting out of the droid spider body that was a missed opportunity. It was here, and then it was gone. You know, it just kind of went poof. It, there's a lot of stuff about this series, aside from maybe Elskull coming back and such in some of the novels. Most of what we see in the X-Wing Rogue Squadron uh, comic series, up to this point at least, it's kind of throwaway stuff that never tends to impact anything else. If anything, at least the third Omnibus' stories, thanks to Soon Tier Fell and Nissan Icehard, those have some broader impact on the EU. These were very much the throwaway stories, which is unfortunate because they're such good stories, at least in this Omnibus. Yeah, and, and you know, I, I think you're right in the aspect that it's different than what we've seen before. I mean, when, when Blur's... When he's literally, when he's like, I can literally see the music now, Neri. It's spectacular. And it looks like, like when you're looking over a still pond and someone drops like one stone in it and you get all those ripples like really fast. That's what he's seeing coming from the direction of the temple. And that, and, and, you know, you have no, like, is he force sensitive? I mean, there's nothing to that whatsoever. This could totally be like a Dathomiri type witch magic going on that has like some fundamental roots in the force but yet is different than what we've seen before. But one thing I didn't like about Requiem was that all the Bothans looked exactly the same. I mean, I did not like the portrayal of the Bothans. I you, mean, sir, are a racist. All Bothans <laughs> look the same? Racist. Well, yeah, that's what I, I felt like. I felt like, like, 
Like that was like one of those things where they were so generically done that it definitely made me feel human where, you know, like mm-hmm. that, that racist feeling where, where when you haven't seen a lot of people of a certain gender or type, you know, you, you just assume that everybody looks the same and, 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 you know, that can be applied to everybody. But when you are around, you know, a vast majority of like in the EU, you know, you get well, Whiteford, Grayford, Thisford. In this comic, they're almost all Brownford. They almost all have the same type of jaw look. They look more canine than they do type horse type looking. And they're very less furry. They all have goatees and their hair is all slicked back. I mean, they all have the very cloned feel to them. And so there were times where I had a hard time figuring out which one was uh, Dervol or whatever his name was, the, the main antagonist. Jirov. Uh, yeah, Jirov. Because uh, him and the other guy looked so much alike. I'm like, wait a minute, am I, am I, is that the bad guy? No, no, it's not the bad guy. The bad guy's already at the temple. But yeah, it was just one of those things where, you know, there are a couple things like that that I really, I was put off by. Um, Wedge, you know, Wedge's reactions, again, that makes me think it had less to do with the force and more magic, you know, that, that, cause he was definitely, like you say, we first see him, his eyes have no pupils. He's kind of enthralled. And then the next time we see him, the guy's like going off about how the rogues are, are, are uh, giving him a headache. And Wedge says, you can imagine how sorry I am, you know, but he's still standing all zombie like in the corner. So it's like he's slowly coming out of whatever it is. And then the guy like does like some kind of forced blast magic on him. And that kind of like snaps him out of it. And he lets him go. And then he, he's, you know, when he lets him go, he focuses attention more on the, the, the as I like to call them, the Urukai, because that's for all intents and purposes what I felt like they were. Uh, they were being sent out there, and now he's kind of, the Devarian is focusing on them, and he's kind of let us hold on Wedge go. And so now Wedge is free. But, you know, yeah, you get that line where Wedge is like, well, I'm not force sensitive, so I'm gone. But then you're like, well, if Wedge is not force sensitive, does that mean everyone else is more force sensitive than Wedge? And that's why they were all having dreams and weird feelings from everything. Now, I really lean towards it was a magic thing. Yeah, and from the standpoint of inconsistency here, yeah, the the, the Bothans did look very much the same, and we do get some some levels of what to some of these stories, but we got to keep in mind where these stories are coming from. The creative teams keep shifting like crazy. Um, we've got Michael Stackpole essentially doing the story outline or sort of the broad story points for these, but this is where we jump between. Gosh, let's see, we got Ryder Wyndham doing the special with Michael Stackpole not even involved in that one. We've got uh, Jan Sternad, remember uh, the one whose name I learned how to finally pronounce, uh, who wrote Battleground Tatooine. And then we got uh, Scott Tolson comes in for the Warrior Princess. Then Sternad is back for Requiem for a Rogue. And then from an art standpoint, we've got uh, Nado, N-A-D-E-A-U. Uh, we got Nado doing it for Battleground Tatooine, doing it for the Warrior Princess, and even doing it for the special. Um, though with different inkers each time. And then we got Gary Erskine doing it for Requiem for a Rogue, which fortunately at least looks somewhat like Nado's work. So it, it, it's an odd thing. I mean, it's one of the series, of all the Star Wars series broadly speaking, uh, it's rare for us to tend to see the creative team shift quite that much. At least back then it was. Now it still does seem like it's kind of an odd thing. But man, it's like they couldn't decide who it was they wanted to do the writing and the art for these, unless what they were dealing with was an issue of maybe the fact that there were either so many characters or perhaps that there was so much detail because there were so many starfighters in it that there were only, you know, like, like say you had one storyline that had to be out by three months from now. Maybe they would have to say, okay, we're going to have you do this one, but it's going to take you so long that you wouldn't be able to do the art for the next one, so we got to hire in somebody for that one, and we're going to have to keep switching back and forth. Kind of like where they that had Jan Dursima sometimes not doing the art for Legacy, 
and had other people do the fill-ins while she was doing some of the major arcs like, say, Claws of the Dragon. No, that totally actually makes sense. You know, other little touches that I liked, though, was how, like, we saw uh, Tavira. You know, she played uh, heavily in, in Warrior Princess. Actually, I, I gotta say, Warrior Princess, for me and, and for Plora's character, that did a lot for both. I, I really found that story, you know, we talk about how these are kind of like throwaways. For her character, I felt that one story was kind of essential to make her a relevant character. Uh, you know, you see in the past, like, her brother, uh, is it? Heron? I'm trying to yeah, Heron. Yeah. When when Heron was a kid, he was like the devil incarnate. That the, the family was doing like a a royal line incestual breeding, trying to breed out the bad, and he was born just pure bad. And you later find out that he was Darth Vader's informant on the planet. And Vader would come down and, and would play with him as a little kid. I mean, just kind of creepy moments, but her brother's now alive and well and is running the the rebellion on the planet that she's down there. She's trying to kind of squash this three-way rebellion between the empire. These new rebels, her brother's doing the parliament that's going on and, and the people in, in general, she's there for the people. And she knows that Heron can't be Heron because she killed Heron because when they were little kids, the night her family was murdered by the empire and the betrayal, she murdered her brother because her brother tried to have her killed too, because he betrayed them all. And that was a very profound moment for her character because it was like, wow, no wonder she has been such a hardcore Sith beep for so long in the stories. I mean, I, I really, I felt like up until that point, she graded on me. But as soon as that moment came and went, I was like, okay, I'm, I understand. I can, I can get behind this character. I can like this character. And it was one of those moments where it literally was a flip of the switch. It was like finding out that she was able to do something like that that was like, okay, well, now I know why she's so hard. Yeah, she went from being a character that you just despised because all she did was gripe and nitpick and basically be a pain in the butt to every other character. It was, oh, who's Plur? Yeah, she's the bald B-word over there in the corner. Um, now, we know why. Now we have a much more human side to her, a much more emotional side to her, and we realize, you know, what she's sort of been running from, and there's this whole other aspect of her trying to sort of balance now her being essentially royalty. Uh, is Plurdicartha Estillo of Iatu 6 mm -hmm. or being, you know, just good old Plur of Rogue Squadron. And it's kind of cool to see her still be able to take part in some of the Rogue Squadron missions as it goes along. Though she won't wind up doing that much at all, as I recall, after this comic series is over. She is another of these interesting characters developed for this comic series whose existence essentially stops once the comic series is over from the standpoint of, of the expanded universe. It's like they don't even need to, uh, to have any type of reference to her. I, I can only imagine the only reason she was even mentioned in iJedi was because Leonia Tavira winds up being a part of iJedi. Otherwise, they probably would have just left her completely out of it. You know, completely out of even being mentioned in the thing. Yeah. And the flashback, you know, plus it shows her with hair, you know, little girls with hair, it's, it's what you expect, you know. But she goes, my father was able to lift me to a venting shaft that led outside. There was only one thing stopping me, my darling little brother. He screamed for the nobles to come and get me. And he's holding onto her arm and screaming and she's reaching for a rock. <laughs> I just, like, there's tears streaming down her eyes. I mean, it's a powerful scene. But, but did you notice that how does he wind up getting into Darth Vader's thrall? Darth Vader... Full more machine than man, Darth Vader is sitting on the kid's bed playing with toys with him 
to get him to wind up being loyal to Vader and uh, when he gives him that uh, the ring that essentially controls him. I'm sorry. Darth Vader playing with the little kid, playing with toys, it, it, on the one hand back then, it was laughable. Now, it's a cross between laughable, because it really is a bizarre image, and perhaps almost tragic, given the fact that we know how much Anakin had wanted that child, or turns out the twins, uh, that he knew that Padme was pregnant with when she died. So now it puts, takes on a whole new meaning of him playing with this evil child, and you go, yeah, maybe it would have been a bad thing for Anakin slash Vader to be a daddy after all. Well, and and that makes me think about that ring. I mean, okay, wh- what about this ring? We know that when the the adult version of Hiron, the one that isn't him, he wore the ring and it gave him the younger one's memories. So is it more a controlling device or is it some kind of Sith artifact? And then you kind of got a question. It's like, okay, did Palpatine send Vader to do this? And that's that's me getting all Palpatine's the mastermind of everything. <laughs> But it, there's definitely like some questions now revolving around that ring. I mean, it's funny that the Vader's using the Force to fly X-wings and Tie Fighters around for the kid while they're playing in the room, and he's got him on his knee, like all Santa Claus, like like, oh, let's play with Papa Vader. He's fun. He's gonna float things around like fruits and stuff. Come on, Padme, let's have kids. And it's funny because you know this makes the second storyline, or I guess it's the first of the two. But it's one of the two storylines in a row, just in this series, just in this omnibus, where somebody gets their hand blown off. Sorry, we got to take care of the ring. we got to save Heron. Boom! There goes his hand. And earlier, <laughs> of course, we have Giroff blowing off his own hand to do the, uh, the choking and the finger-pointing in Requiem for a Rogue. So it makes for a, an, an odd theme uh, to be developing here. I do like the fact that as they have... Uh, Plur's character developing, it doesn't at least just stop in Warrior Princess. It does go on briefly into uh, Requiem for a Rogue, although it, it's a little bit weird how, you know, the, the way the situation ends in Warrior Princess and the first few panels yeah. of Requiem for a Rogue almost feel like one should be, like they should be interwoven with each other or something. But you see like her, that. you see her in uh, Requiem for a Rogue already starting to grow her hair back out. Um, so the baldness was a choice. It was not something where, you know, it's just uh, to her species or to her uh, planet or anything like that. We saw plenty of people who had hair on her planet. That was a stylistic choice, apparently, for her maybe to hide her identity. Yeah, exactly. But uh, the way those two scenes overlapped was perfect. I mean, granted, I, you know, you have him climb on. He, he goes, uh, you're a dang good pilot, wouldn't want a mission. That, and then he climbs in, you're always welcome. Then they fly off, and then it goes back to that same handshake, you know, and they have almost the same conversation, but now there's more detail, you know, where they're going to next, and I, I love the way that that played out. But I also like how they do the, the roster where it's got the, the pictures of each one of their faces and all that. Um, you know, one of the things, though, that, that I wanted to uh, touch on real fast was, I, like I said, I've got these in the omnibuses. Nathan, you've got them in their, in their most excellent. This is probably one of those series that I wish I had in the singles. The covers are just gorgeous they're awesome little space bound ones and then the downside here is my omnibus number two is already falling apart uh at the top the, the glue is coming out at the bottom it's really bad like i'm expecting pages to fall out any reading at this point i'm being so careful with it and that's the one downside and i've heard about that with people you know in the past and it's just one of those things that you know you get a great deal with these omnibuses and it's fun to have them all together but there is that one downside you've got to be gentle with them because if you're not you will pay the price. 
Yeah, I never had that happen with an omnibus before, but I've had it happen twice with Star Wars books, both actually being books tying into The Force Unleashed. My copy of The Force Unleashed comic, the first one that I had, literally fell apart, and thankfully Randy Stradley sent me a replacement copy of it, um, which then wound up essentially being supplanted when I was able to finally find a, uh, a signed Hayden Blackman copy of it. But the, uh, the Force Unleashed art and making of book of mine, yeah, the cover fell off the day I got it. And I've never oh. been able to get it replaced, and there's no way to fix it so that it stays on constantly. Not super glue, not tape, nothing. It's rare to see that with a Star Wars product, but yeah, I've seen that myself a couple times. You mentioned the, um, the issue with, uh, and I had mentioned it early on as well, the sort of dramatist personae type thing where they've got the image of each pilot with their names. And they're going to tend to do that quite a bit, or at least have the little name blocks identifying every character in most of the storylines to go in this series. It, it kind of brings me back to say, boy, especially since a lot of times these novels are having insert pages now where it's not just plain text. They've got sort of some images on some of the text on the novel pages, even if it's just instead of having the regular logo of a book, it's, you know, a big old block with the logo with some writing inside it or something to make it look more fancy. How cool would it be if they were to take this approach Combine it with the Dramatis Personae approach from the novels, but do it with an approach much more similar to the way that we saw the introductory pages that we talked about in the Essential Readers Companion, and have every novel from here on out have a Dramatis Personae, but make it be visual. Show us a picture along with the names of each character, even if it means having less characters listed so they can minimize the amount of pages. That, I think, would be awesome. Uh. They're never going to do it, but I would love to see that in the novels, because the hardest thing to do with some of these characters is picture them correctly. Uh, I had the hardest time picturing Bothans for a long time until we finally saw some pictures, and it totally changed the way that I imagined Borsk Felia when reading the Thrawn trilogy, for instance. Well, you know, and you could do it a la Karen Travis, where you have this whole little glossary in the back, where, you know, you can have, like, the original one that you have now with a little thing saying, you know, detail gallery in the back, spoiler warning, where there's more details about it, where if you go to the back, you know, hey, you might spoil some of the story, but you're going to get a little more detail out of it as well. Because I know one thing I'd love to see is, like, with the New Jedi Order books, where you have the map and the little sector maps. You know, I, I thought that was a great idea. I'd love to see them do more of that kind of stuff, too, where you not only have an idea of what these people look like, but you also have a, get a feel for where in the galaxy these events are taking place. That was always something that was fun. It gave you an immersion feeling where you felt like you were actually there, or at least, you know, you knew where the events were going on in your corner of the galaxy far, far away. Right Now, we would be remiss if we did not talk about one other issue that becomes much more prominent in the series with this particular omnibus, uh, with our you know 15 minutes or whatever it is that we have left at most here, and that is character deaths. The Rogue Squadron novels are pretty well known within Star Wars for being one of the places where you see characters dying much more often. You never quite know when the Rogue Squadron characters are going to die, or Wraith Squadron, once Aaron Alston came in and took over the series for a while. You never quite know, and that gives you a sense of peril, something you don't tend to get with the big three. You know, until Chewbacca died, we didn't really see many major characters dying. At best, we'd seen, you know, what, General Maydeen dying in Darksaber, and ooh, that was a huge deal. But Rogue Squadron, or the X-Wing books, lots of deaths. Not as much up until we get to Requiem for a Rogue, and then things really start to change. Uh, we had Groznik die, uh, Elskalorl's Wookiee companion, but now we get two members of the squadron 
who've been being built up during this storyline, one of whom had been a member of the Squadron since the beginning of the Rogue Squadron series, if you're not counting Rogue Leader, of course. And it seems like it's bad to be a Sullustin and be part of Rogue Squadron in comics, because we did have a Sullustin Rogue Squadron member die in Rogue Leader. But by the end of Requiem for a Rogue, uh, Girov, the guy who you know shoots his hand and separates it, um, has come in and shot Glurnep in the back. Glur was already injured anyway and being hit by all this Sith magic, and now he's been shot in the back. He's dying, and the only thing that's keeping him alive is the Sith magical energies, the dark side energies. And he wants the temple, this this Sith temple that uh, the Deveronian found first, that the Empire had been trying to use so that uh, the Emperor could come and sort of draw power from it or whatever. Um, he wants it destroyed while he's still inside. The only thing keeping him alive is this, I know I'm dead anyway, blow it up. And we have one of the other characters, Harrion, uh, the Bith, who winds up getting injured and gets a brain injury, not something that's going to be good for a Bith especially, who winds up taking one of the uh, damaged starfighters, I believe it was Phalus's starfighter, her, her X-Wing, to yep. fly towards the temple to try to blow it up in the middle of all the confusion of a battle, um, kind of catching the enemy off guard, only the missiles don't work. The proton torpedoes do not work, and the only choice is to fly inside and blow up, taking all the different munitions inside the temple with it that would bring down the temple, but it winds up killing two of our Rogue Squadron members, Harrion the Bith and Dlur the Sullustan, and we get this great ending comment where uh, they're sitting around a fire talking uh, about what has just taken place, and Plur, who's shown up and sort of pulled their butts out of the fire with even more of a distraction uh, as she brings her own uh, starfighters into the fray, uh, Plur who does know a whole lot about sacrifice and death from what's happened on her planet, says, It's a painful truth, but sometimes the only way evil can be defeated is by the selfless, sacrificial efforts of good people. We can only hope that when our time comes, the cause is as noble and the need as great. That is a perfect way of putting all the sacrifice in the X-Wing novels into perspective, and we get it here within the comic, and it sort of signals, in my opinion, the, the end of an era. After Requiem for a Rogue, this is where the series becomes much more serious in terms of the number of casualties, and from here on, things get, I don't want to say darker, but certainly more interconnected, because in the Empire Service, it's going to introduce Baron Fell and introduce the San Isard into it, and their storyline and the interconnectedness of that is going to continue all the way up through the end of the series with mandatory retirement, which in the Omnibus series is just the third Omnibus. But for those who are reading as they were released as individual issues, we're talking about multiple storylines here. We've got, in the Empire Service, The Making of Baron Fell, which is an extra large size issue just for his background. We've got uh, Family Ties and Masquerade and Mandatory Retirement. All these stories that are going to build from here and make this series much more, uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Much more uh, connected in tone to the X-Wing novels. But it really does start here in the last issue of this omnibus, the last issue of Requiem for a Rogue, when we see those two rogues die in a sacrifice to save everyone else. Yeah, I, and I like how, you know, she's like, the Torps weren't enough. I'm going in, Glur. And he's like, there's enough fuel and weaponry in here to blow up the city. All you have to do is touch it off. You've got it. You've got it. Fantastic job, Heron. Absolutely fat. And then he's gone. I mean, I, it reminded me in, in a sense of uh, recently uh, Captain America when he's talking to uh, his girlfriend. He's like, we'll dance sometime. And he literally gets cut off mid-sentence, you know. And and yeah, that plural line, that, that totally makes 
like you said, the tone of what's going to happen to Rogue Squadron and the sacrifices that they're going to make more poignant because they do make great sacrifices, but the reasons why were even greater. I mean, you know, we see some some serious awesomeness coming their way. They're the reason why they get back to Coruscant. I mean, there, there's a lot in store for these gallery of rogues, these poor unfortunate pilots. You know, and, and it's one of those things where, you know, when, when the race squadron comes about, you know, and, and, and you've, you see them build up off of what Rogue Squadron had been, you know, Rogue Squadron was always the ones that they were always like, oh, and here's your heroes from the battle of blah, 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 and the battle of blah, 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 and the battle of blah, you know, it's like when the rogues came back from their battles, they were always being put out on these, you know, wave your hand, kind of get in a parade, you know, we got to raise up the, the morale of everybody kind of stuff. Whereas the race were more like, you know, let's just get them in, get them out. And so it, it's, it's fun to watch the action side of, of what's going on here because these guys were the, you know, seal team six of the star Wars galaxy. <laughs> It's just too bad that so many of these characters that are introduced in this series uh, that are original to this series, as opposed to being ones like Hobby and Wes who are brought in and made major characters but who already existed, it's just too bad that so many of the characters of this series don't wind up showing up again. Or if they show up again, they only show up briefly. Like uh, Cap Dindo, for instance, winds up showing up in Ice Hard's Revenge, but almost nowhere else within the other Star Wars uh, saga which is very unfortunate because they spend a lot of time getting us to know these characters and then it really thanks to you know the the nice you know story hook idea of well wedge is reforming and reconstituting rogue squadron to begin the novels you wind up with the ability to simply wipe the slate clean these characters should still be out there somewhere but instead when the slate is wiped clean chronologically for the novels which were already being produced at the time they just kind of let a lot of these characters drop Again, that's why you could almost say that until we reach in the Empire Service, which is the next omnibus, uh, anything before that, anything in the first or second omnibus here, for the most part, they're fluff. They're good stories, but they impact next to nothing and are certainly not essential uh, reads for the Star Wars EU fan. Yeah, I have to actually agree with that assessment. I mean, it's it's only going to give you some details about the squadron as a whole. If you're following the squadron... This would be something you'll want to know just to know what happened. Um, there's nothing major going on. I would say the most major thing we've got here is, you know, the fate of Blur and we have the, uh, the fate of Plur, uh, in her sense, because really that's about it. And even then, those are characters introduced in this series whose fates are figured out in this series who don't get a Absolutely. chance to really affect anything else. <laughs> Oh, you poor Rogue Squadron books. I think we're leaning a little hard on you. But it's good, good, good cover art. I got I got to say, most of the cover arts are on my screensaver somewhere. You know, I mean, they're just one of those. I, I, I love the space battles that come in these comics. And I think that's probably the one thing that will always resonate with me. Whether the stories were, you know, throwaway or not, the art was timeless. Even if the art didn't necessarily fit, like Delur seeming to have Force Lightning on issue 3 of Requiem for a Rogue, or an X-Wing exploding itself rather than being inside the temple and exploding on the last issue of Requiem for a Rogue. It's one of those things where it's like, well, we're going to catch the spirit of the issue, <laughs> the spirit of the series, not necessarily, uh, you know, the, the, the specific literal visual translation of what it is that you're reading, etc., 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 yeah, because yeah. that one, that was, would be going out in flames, right? <laughs> yeah, pretty much. 
That yeah. was that was a cool cover though. That one's the one where it's all bright red with the with the X wing just kind of being roasted from the backside, right? Right, right. Oh, I love that cover. Yeah, so a good series, uh, fun to read at the same time though, not essential though. That will change when we get to our next omnibus, which means we have one more episode left in our X wing coverage. We covered the Rogue Squadron novels and uh, the other ones by Michael Stackpole, the Race Squadron ones, and the other ones by Aaron Alston. We have covered Mercy Kill by itself. We've now covered Omnibi 1 and 2. One remains before we move away from the X-Wing coverage here, so make sure you catch us next week for our coverage of Baron Soontierfell's debut and impact with Omnibus Volume 3. That's right, and don't forget about our contest. The details were at the beginning of the show. That about wraps up this episode of Star Wars Beyond the Films. Guys, thanks for listening. And remember, you can listen to our show airing on Middle Earth Network Radio, as well as streaming on our Star Wars Report website, www.starwarsreport.com. Our episodes are also available right on our Facebook page, at SW Beyond Films, or you could just type in Star Wars Beyond the Films in the search bar. Hey, but no matter how you get there, be sure you like our page, okay? It's one of the best ways to interact with us, and it's growing daily. We have some fun little questions we toss out there. You can not only post comments to, to us while you're listening to the show, you just might even be heard. Each month we will release feedback episodes when we have enough emails and messages relevant to make an episode. If it's less than 45 minutes, we're going to hold it off. So, you know, there's some questions we've asked that we still haven't got enough feedback for. So unless we uh, get enough to make those episodes, we may have to have a feedback episode full of smaller questions down the road. So, you know, some of the real world questions that you had, you know, if you have more, fire them off. You can email us at swbeyondfilms at starwarsfanworks.com or you can fire us off a message at the Facebook page. Either way, either one of them will get to us and we will get back to you. So for Star Wars Beyond the Films, this has been Nathan Butler and Mark Ann Whistler saying thanks for listening and may the Force be with you. And don't quote us the odds <laughs> that R2 will blow out Nathan's eardrums that any of these characters are going to have an impact on anything. Well, that it's a rogue's life, after all. <laughs> that was the same one, you little rat. <laughs>